Amen. We are continuing our sermon series this morning in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 14 now. We've just finished chapter 13, which was challenging. Challenging to interpret, challenging to understand, challenging to teach. Uh, chapter 14 is a little simpler. The interpretation is a little simpler. Uh, however, the message is still very challenging. We have an example here uh, to avoid, and we have an example in our passage to follow, and the example is a woman. That, and Jesus says of her, she has done a beautiful thing. And I just want to point out, wouldn't it be great to have Jesus say of you, you have done a beautiful thing. We're going to talk about what it is that she did that calls Jesus to say she has done a beautiful thing. And we're going to talk about how we can live in such a way that Jesus might say of us that we have done a, a beautiful thing. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Mark 14. Please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I am going to read verses 1 through 11. And this is the very inspired Word of God. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do, you, why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we will learn from the example of this woman in this story. And as a result of our time together, we would value you to such an extent that we would be willing to give everything to have you. We want to hear you say of us, we have done a beautiful thing. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So first of all, in our passage, we have an example to avoid. Verse 1 says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The most common view suggests this would be on Wednesday of Passion Week, Jesus' last week before His death. His death will happen on Friday. These events happen on Wednesday. Verse 1 tells us the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Him by stealth and kill Him. The religious leaders are opposed to Him. They're ready to kill Him. This is not shocking to us. We've seen this several times throughout Mark. The, the problem is Jesus' popularity is growing John connects his popularity with the fact that he's just raised Lazarus from the grave. And so the last thing that the, that the religious leadership wants is some kind of a PR nightmare where they go arrest Jesus in the midst of all this popularity. And so they, they want a way, they need a way to arrest him by stealth. In other words, secretly, subtly, in a way that sort of, you know, you don't have the crowds and the PR nightmare. So verse 2, they decide not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. 
So they decide, you know, we, we just can't do it. The feast is here. All of these people come to Jerusalem. The city swells with people. Jesus is popular. His popularity is increasing. There's maybe rumors that he's the next Davidic king and going to deliver everyone from Rome. So we just can't do it. Now, so they, they, they sort of decide, we'll wait until everybody kind of goes home and the festival's over and things calm down and then we will arrest him. But now we're going to skip down to verse 10. And you may say, wait a minute, why are we skipping down to verse 10? We don't normally just skip around randomly. Uh, there's a reason. Uh, Mark, he does this. He'll start a story and then he'll introduce another story and then he'll come back and finish the story he started. It's, it's actually called a Markin sandwich. Uh, this, is, this is not a phrase I've made up. This is a technical New Testament term, a Markin sandwich. He starts one story then brings in another one, and then comes back and finishes the story. We've seen this several times in Mark. Here we have another one. Why does he do that? I think he wants us to read both stories together. They, don't necess- they didn't necessarily happen chronologically together, but he wants us to read them together and sort of compare and contrast them. And so that's what we're going to do. But for our purposes, we're going to finish that first story first, and then we'll look at the second story. So therefore, let's skip down to verse 10, but we will come back to verse 3, okay? Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So the religious leaders decide we're not going to do this during the festival. It's too public. We would have a PR nightmare on our hands. So we'll wait till the festival's over. But all of a sudden from nowhere... One of Jesus' disciples comes up to them and initiates this conversation and says, Hey, you want to find out where Jesus is? I can show you. And so it's because of Judas that Jesus is actually killed on the Passover on Friday. The religious leaders were going to postpone it, you know, punt it down the road a little bit. Judas is the key piece that allows Jesus to be crucified on Friday. Why is that significant? Because it's on Passover. And he's the Passover lamb. He's our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. So notice the hand of God orchestrating all of this. Wow. Now how does Judas betray Jesus? That's kind of a popular question. What is it that he did that betrayed Jesus? Well, Judas is the one who knows where Jesus will be. He's an insider. He knows where Jesus will be on that particular night. So he says, I can lead you to him at night in a way where all the crowds won't be there so you can do it by stealth. And, and Judas initiates this. He goes to them. He says, what will you give me? Matthew's gospel tells us that he, he will give them uh, 30 pieces of silver. And, and so money appears to be the, the, the motive. What will you give me if I tell you where Jesus is? And of course, they will. this will happen. It'll happen on Thursday, the next day the day prior to the crucifixion on Friday. But the opposition of the religious leadership is not overly shocking to us. We're used to this by now. They're looking for a way to arrest him. They're looking for a way to kill him. We know this. We've seen this. What's so shocking is the opposition that we see from one of his own, one of the 12. Just a reminder, one of the ones that Jesus personally chose. Like, I'm going to choose you to follow me. One of the ones who has spent three years with Jesus 
listening to him teach, hanging around him, being in the presence of God himself for three years, and then deciding one day to walk away, and not just walk away, but to betray him in the process. And by the way, sort of a side note, perhaps you've had people that have been under your, you know, you've discipled, they've been in your ministry, your Bible study, your Sunday school class, and then they just sort of walk away from the faith. And you say, how can you do that? How do you explain that? Well, I just want to encourage you. Jesus had that same kind of thing happen to him. Right? He had people he invested in for three years not only walk away, but betray him. So don't be overly shocked you know, when it happens to you as well. I'm guessing that here this morning in the room, those of you online, I'm guessing we don't have too many people who are like the religious leadership who outright oppose Jesus, who would say, I am opposed to Jesus. I'm just guessing we don't have too many of those. Uh, but I think it's very likely, even very possible, we have some that might fall into the, the Judas category. And by that, I don't mean that you're going to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. By that, I mean you are a person who has at some point in your life identified with Jesus, associated with Jesus, maybe considered yourself a follower of Jesus. And at some point down the road, either you have or maybe you will choose to walk away. Like Judas, you will walk away from the faith. You'll walk away from Jesus. I think it's helpful to think and contrast the difference between Peter and Judas. Both of them messed up royally. What's the difference? The difference is Peter came back. Peter was restored. Peter was redeemed. Peter was forgiven. Jesus used Peter. God used Peter for great purposes, including writing Scripture. Judas, on the other hand, did not. Did not come back. Was not redeemed. Was not restored. Was not forgiven. Was not used in this kind of way. And I think it's so sobering to hear the words that Jesus speaks about Judas. Look at Mark 14, verse 21. Jesus says about Judas, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus says of Judas, it would have been better for him if he had never been born. I think that's an interesting verse to consider on a day when we, as Christians, the evangelicals, consider the sanctity of human life 49 years ago. January 22, 1973, when our Supreme Court passed Roe v. Wade, legalizing abortion in all 50 states. And it, it appears it's possible that that will get overturned. We hope it will. We pray that it will. It's a possibility given the current makeup of the current Supreme Court. Some people will say, well, that's just wrong. They just can't do that. we got a precedent in place. It's the law of the land. And the answer is the Supreme Court has overturned previous rulings. There's a precedent for overturning previous rulings that were wrong in the first place. For example, Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 overturned Plessy versus Ferguson, a ruling in 1896. And Brown versus the Board of Education made segregation based on race illegal in our country. And I'm glad the Supreme Court got it right. They got it right. They overturned a, an unjust law, and I'm grateful for it. And I'm hopeful that the Supreme Court will get it right again and overturn an unjust law, an immoral law, uh, because we, we, we are pro-life. We are unapologetically pro-life, 
And we're pro-life because we believe God is pro-life. He values all life. No matter how old, no matter the age, no matter how young, even just conceived, uh, even the last breath, all people, equal dignity, equal worth because they're created in the image of God. All people, regardless of gender, regardless of color, equally worthy before God because they're created in the image of God. We believe that wholeheartedly. I'll die for that. Um, And that's what makes this statement so shocking from Jesus. He says, of a man who was created in the image of God, Judas, it would actually be better for this person if he had never been born. That's sobering. That should sober us this morning. There's at least one person in human history who was identified as a follower of Jesus, who Jesus said of him, it would have been better for you if you had never been born. And we know there's a category of people. There's a category of actual people, according to Matthew 7, 23, who one day will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, remember all the things I did for you? Remember all the works I did in your name? And Jesus will say of them, I never knew you. Think about that. A category of actual people who think of themselves, identify, they identify as Christ followers, will be told by Jesus, I never knew you. That is sobering. We naturally, every one of us says, well, it's not me. Every single, it can't be me. Because I know that I know that I know that I know. There's no way it could be me. Guess what? That's exactly what Judas said of himself. It can't be me. The day after Judas betrayed Jesus, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And he said, is it me? Yes, it's you. You just did it within the past 24 hours. Is it me? It can't be me. I would never do something like that. We naturally think of ourselves as as people who couldn't possibly fit in that category. According to the Scripture, somebody fits in that category. How arrogant would we be if we said, it couldn't possibly be me? There's a natural falling away that happens. You see it. You see it with denominations. It's It's a historical trend. It's a historical pattern. Denominations naturally tend to drift away from the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Churches have a natural tendency to drift away. People have a natural tendency to drift away. And and the best way to ask the question, is it me? The, The way to know if it's you is not to ask the question, am I drifting away? You'll say no every time. Am I drifting away? No, no, no. You'll rationalize. You'll have reasons why. It's not me. The question to ask is this. What are you doing intentionally to make sure that you're not? What are you doing to stay in the faith? What are you doing to stay awake? Remember, that's the point of Mark 13. Stay awake. Stay on guard. We saw the command three times. Stay awake. Stay on guard. And now he gives us an example of a person who didn't. Judas. One of his disciples, one of the ones who spent time with Jesus. What's wrong with Judas? He didn't stay awake. He didn't stay on guard. He walked away. Right? He, he's an example. So my question for you is, what are you doing intentionally to make sure you're staying awake? What are you doing positively to make sure you're staying on guard? That you don't, you're not like Judas. Someone who once identified with Jesus, but at some point sort of naturally drifts away. By the way, this is how I am when it comes to eating healthy and trying to stay disciplined and exercise and do those kind of things. I I am not a model to follow. So I'm going to tell you what I do and then I'm going to tell you, don't do what I do. All right. 
I, for the past three years, have signed up to do the Pikes Peak Ascent or Marathon. So it's on the calendar, and I know it's there. And that causes me to say, I better be disciplined with eating and exercising and running. And so I'm, I'm pretty disciplined for up, leading up to the marathon. And then I get through doing it, and I'm like, well, I just did a marathon. I can eat what I want for you know, at least a week or two. And then a week or two usually turns into like a month. And then it's usually around that time when Halloween hits, and all of a sudden there's all this candy everywhere. And then about a week later, my birthday hits, and there's all this chocolate cake everywhere. And that's a good thing. I'm not complaining about that. Uh, and then, you know, it's not too long after that, Christmas, uh, Thanksgiving hits, right? And that all brings a whole new, you know, set of situation and circumstance. And then you got Christmas right around the corner from that. And by the way, it's getting darker at night. And it's getting cold outside. So the idea of going outside and breathing in this cold air, I mean, that sounds miserable. And then January 1 comes around, and I'm like, you know, I, I probably ought to go for a run. You know? I'll just go for a three-mile run. It'll be easy, you know, because, I mean, I'm a marathon runner. I just ran a marathon not that long ago. So I think of myself as this marathoner, you know. And I'm, like, I'm just going to do a little three-mile jog around the neighborhood. I can't even complete the three-mile jog. I'm, like, just struggling, out of breath. What happened? Just a little time, a little falling away. It just happens so easily. In my mind, I'm in all kinds of great shape. In reality, I can't run three miles around the block. And then the whole process starts again. It's like, I've got to start being healthy. got to start being disciplined. Better get in shape. Got to train. Got an event coming up. Right? Once again, don't follow my example. Do something better than that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm all or nothing. Kind of, it's all or nothing. I'm either very disciplined or I'm eating like four desserts a day. It's one or the other. And this, I think, is how the Christian faith often works. It's feast or famine. It's all or nothing. And so be willing to ask yourself, am I? Are you just thinking of yourself as, well, I'm a Christian. Of course I am. I mean, how could I not be? Of course I am. Just like I think of myself as, of course I'm in shape. Of course I'm a, I'm a marathon. You know, I'm a pike speak kind of guy. I can do this. Well, go run three miles and see. You know, are you willing to at least look in the mirror and ask the question? You know, what, what, what question might you ask? Here, here's how I like to think in terms of two categories. There's corporate disciplines and there's private disciplines. The corporate disciplines, we like to use four words. Worship, connect, serve, and impact. Are you worshiping faithfully, regularly with God's people? Are you making it a priority? Are you connecting with God's people? Are you connected to a smaller group of people who know you, you know them, you're praying for each other. When life gets tough, they're there for you. Do you have a small group of people? Sunday school class, Bible study, accountability group, serving? Are you giving your time, energy, resources to bless God's people and impacting? Are you partnering together with God's people to make an impact? Those are just the corporate disciplines. Are you doing those things? If not, I think your, your default ought to be, I'm probably drifting away. You probably are. And then there's the private disciplines, you know? Are you spending time in God's Word? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you spending time trying to crucify the flesh? Go to war against the sin nature? It's very important. Part of being a disciple. Part of following Christ. Is any of that happening? If none of that's happening, you are drifting. Right? Are, you, are you willing to at least look in the mirror and ask if it's, ha if it's happening? Are you willing to step on the scale and see what the scale says? You know, when I'm not training, the last thing I want to do is step on the scale. I don't do it because I know. I know. So I don't want to be reminded of the reality. 
You know, if you're, if you're not willing to examine yourself, that reveals you're drifting. Paul, uh, Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. So if you say, I'm not even willing to look in the mirror and ask the tough questions, am I staying awake? Am I remaining? Am I keeping my eyes open? If you're not even willing to ask the question, you're drifting. If you are willing to ask the question and be honest, and you say, man, I, I really can see kind of how I'm drifting, that's okay. Just be like Peter and don't be like Judas. Right? Peter responded. Peter came back. Peter was restored. Peter was redeemed. God will bring you back and use you for great purposes. Just be like Peter. Don't be like Judas. We have an example to avoid. And this brings us now to talk about an example to follow. This brings us to look at that middle story that's found in verses 3-9. through nine. This story is also recorded in Matthew and John. Luke does not record this particular story. Luke records a similar story of a woman who anoints Jesus, but it's a different occasion because it happens earlier in Jesus' ministry and it happens from a woman who's identified as a sinner. So we're going to focus on Mark's gospel, but we're going to bring in some of the details from Matthew and John to sort of flesh it out. So look at verse 3. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table... A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, John's gospel tells us that Lazarus was also at this feast, and Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha, were also at this feast. And so John also tells us that Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha, is the one who put the ointment, the perfume, on Jesus. All right. So this is Mary, the one in Luke 10, who is at the feet of Jesus. And Martha says, Jesus, will you tell her to do... I'm the one doing all the work. Tell her to do some work. And Jesus says, she's chosen well. This is her. Not Mary of Magdalene, not Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is a different Mary. Uh, Mark tells us it's at the house of Simon the leper. So perhaps this is a leper that Jesus has recently healed, and now he's healed. And Lazarus is there. We know Jesus has recently healed Lazarus and brought him back from the dead. So perhaps this is sort of a feast, a gathering of people who have been ministered to by Jesus. And here they are, and Mary comes in and takes this expensive perfume, a year's worth of wages, 300 denarii, and breaks it and, 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 and pours it on him and anoints him with this. Why is she doing this? Perhaps it's her way of saying, thank you. You just raised my brother back from the grave. Perhaps it's her way of worshiping Jesus, saying, I, I do believe, I do recognize you are the resurrection and the life. Right after he's told them he's the resurrection and the life. Uh, perhaps she's, she's recognizing he's the Christ. The word Christ means the anointed one. She's anointing him with this perfume. Um, John tells us that she anointed his feet with her hair. Mark tells us she anointed his head. So which one is it? Was it the feet or the head? Well, it's both. You know, two different accounts, two different perspectives. Anointed both. One gospel writer tells us it was the head, one the feet. It was clearly both. Not everyone was thrilled at this. Look at verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. The disciples are a lot more practically minded. Like they're doing the math in their head. This doesn't make sense. You just wasted the whole bottle on it. And it smells like perfume in here. Right? 
This didn't make sense. We could have taken that bottle, it's worth 300 denarii or a year's worth of wages, gone and sold it, taken the money, and we could have done all kinds of good stuff for ministry purposes. You know, we could have ministered to the poor. Now, John tells us which of the disciples was really behind the scolding. Can you guess who it was? It's Judas. Listen to John 12, verses 4 through 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas was behind the scolding. John tells us he wasn't really concerned about the poor. He just liked having more money in the purse because he kind of liked to get his hands on the money and do whatever he wanted to do with it. But notice how Jesus responds. Look at verse 6. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Jesus says, guys, this was not a waste. What she's done here is a beautiful thing. You'll always have the poor with you. You can take care of them when I'm gone. But I'm only with you for a short, limited amount of time. So for her to honor me in this way is a beautiful thing. Now, Jesus is obviously not minimizing ministry to the poor. He talks a lot about ministering to the poor. He's just saying there's a time and a place for that, and there's a time and a place to just stop and minister to me. And that's what she's doing here. And she's done a beautiful thing. She's wasting her resources on me. It's a beautiful thing. Verse 8, she has done what she could. In other words, she's given everything. She's given everything she has. And by the way, that's the same point of the story that, that we saw back in Mark 12 with the widow who gave the two small coins. And Jesus said she gave more than anybody else because she gave everything. So in, sandwiched in between two stories about two women given everything is Mark 13. What's the point of Mark 13? Stay awake. Be on guard. And here's an example of a woman who gave everything she had, two small coins, she gave it all, and she gave more than anybody else. And here's an, followed by another story of a woman who gave everything. She gave what she could. She poured it all out. She gave it all out for Jesus. What does it mean to stay awake? Look at these two examples of these two women who gave it all and followed their example. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying Mary's intention was to prepare my body for burial. I don't think that's behind her motivation. I think Jesus is taking this as an opportunity to remind his disciples, I'm here for a short time. I'm about to die. So for her to give everything she has to honor me right before I go give my life as the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... That's a beautiful thing. She has an understanding of who I am. And I'm about to go die. And he knows it. Notice that he knows he's about to die. And, and notice that's not the end of the story. And he knows it's not the end of the story. Verse 9, he says, her story is going to be proclaimed wherever the gospel is proclaimed. How does her story get proclaimed? Because it gets written down in three of the four gospels. Jesus says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, her story will be proclaimed. So Jesus saying the gospel is going to be proclaimed is another indication he knows he's not going to stay dead. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's not going to stay dead. He knows he's going to rise. And he knows he's going to commission his disciples to go take this message of good news 
the gospel of what Jesus did, the sacrificial lamb of God who laid down his life and rose again. What is this good news? What is this gospel? It's the good news that God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. He gave everything. God didn't just waste one year's worth of perfume. He lavished us with his love. He poured out his love on us. See how great the the love the Father is for us, that he would lavish us with his love. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. God loved us so much, he gave that which was most valuable to himself. He didn't hold back. He gave it all. He poured it all out for us to lavish us with his love. And of course, Jesus didn't remain dead, just as he raised Lazarus from the dead, so he would raise from the dead. And the good news is not just what Jesus did. The good news is if you will simply hear and believe what he did for you, that he died for your sin and rose again, then you can become a child of God and you can be lavished with God's love. He will lavish you with his love. He will continue to pour out his love on you. And when God does that to you, guess what it does? Guess what it makes you want to do? It makes you want to turn around and lavish your love on him. And that's what we see with this woman. She gave it all. She was willing to give it all because she realized that Jesus gave it all for her and was going to give it all for her. And we're called to just simply follow her example. He gave it all for me, so I give it all for him. Let me just give you several examples that I came up with of ways that we might follow her example and and waste our resources like she wasted her resources. Uh, First of all, going to the mission field. Someone might say, well, that's a royal waste of time. You know, this is where your family is. This is where your resources are. This is your culture. This is your people. This is your language. You're going to cross cultures, cross barrier, those kinds of barriers, and, and deal with the hassle of all that for other people. There's need here. Why go there? Maybe God's calling you to go. Maybe you've recently finished college or you're going to finish college. You say, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. The world will probably say to you, you know, you better get a start on it. You better start doing something smart with your time. And perhaps you say, I really feel like God's calling me to go spend a couple years on the mission field. And give him a couple years, quality years of my life. And I think Jesus says of you, that's a beautiful thing. Maybe you've just recently retired. And you say, all right, now we get to do nothing. <laughs> Perhaps God's tugging at you go, you know, maybe you ought to spend a couple of these golden years on the mission field. Give a couple of years for the, for the for sake of making me known. The world would say, oh, that's kind of a waste of time. But I think Jesus says, that's a beautiful thing. I'll give another example. Going to church. I can imagine the watching world driving by out here going, well, that's kind of a waste of time. You guys are gathering on Sunday morning. You could have slept in. You could have been being productive and start getting a jump start on the week. You go in the mountains and exercise. You know, that's where I have my time with God is in the mountains on the ski slopes. That's where I encounter God. You know, I don't have to come into a room of people. I don't encounter God here. I encounter God up in the mountains. Seems like a waste of time to gather here on Sunday morning. What do y'all do it? Yeah, I can see how the world would look at what we're doing right here and go, this is kind of a waste. But I think Jesus says, this is a beautiful thing. And a third, final example is giving. Sacrificially, financially giving to support the ministry of the church. We heard earlier a report of an opportunity to give above and beyond what we normally regularly give. I imagine the world would look at our normal regular giving and say, that's 
kind of a waste. Why don't you invest that in the stock market? Why don't you, you know, do something fun? Go buy a boat or buy a really nice car, right? We've heard about an opportunity to not only give our regular giving, but to also give above and beyond. Why? So our church can potentially make a greater impact several years down the road. Just a quick side note, aren't you glad that there were people that we don't even know today who came before us who sacrificially gave? Some of them aren't even able to see the fruit of their giving, and here we are on a beautiful property, beautiful building, able to do what we're doing because somebody we don't even know their name gave sacrificially so we could be here. Perhaps we could turn around and give sacrificially in a way that maybe we're not even the recipients of, but someone will be. The world might look at that and go, oh, that's kind of a waste. But I think Jesus says it's a beautiful thing. In our passage, we have an example to follow and an example to avoid. And I want you to notice the fundamental difference between the two. There's a fundamental difference between these two people. Mary viewed Jesus as being so valuable that to have him and to honor him and to worship him was so productive, so important that she was willing to give everything, to give it all to have him. She broke the bottle. She could have just poured out a little bit. You know, why not just pour out a little bit, anoint Jesus, and then save the rest for a rainy day? Wouldn't that be a little wiser? Wouldn't that be a little more strategic? She just broke the bottle. Like, I'm pouring it all. I'm wasting it all. I'm giving it all. Why? Because in her mind, to honor Jesus, to worship Jesus, to have Jesus is to have everything. I'll give everything if I can just have Jesus, because if I have Jesus, I have everything. I'm wealthy. I'm rich if I have him. Judas, on the other hand, had a very utilitarian mentality. Like, I know Jesus. I have a relationship with Jesus. What can I get out of that? Oh, I, I can get money out of that. Judas makes a little bit of money because of his relationship with Jesus. He sees Jesus as a means to an end. What can Jesus do for me? And my question for you this morning is this. Who, who are you? Who are you more like? Are you more like the woman or are you more like Judas? Do you say, I would give anything and everything. Just give me Jesus. If I have Jesus, I have everything. Or do you say, you know, I'm willing to follow Jesus. I'm willing to wear a cross. I'm willing to identify as a Christian. But there's something in it for me, right? Like maybe I'll be more likely to get my prayers answered and I'll be healthy more, maybe. Or maybe I'm more likely to get wealthy because, you know, surely God's got to bless me. If I do these things, surely he's got to bless me, right? I'll worship Jesus. I'll follow Jesus if it means something in it for me. Do I get to go to heaven? Sounds like a pretty good eternal deal. A lot of people look at Jesus in heaven in a very utilitarian way. Sure, I'll raise my hand. I'll fill out the card. I'll trust in Jesus if it means I get to go to heaven. If that's what Jesus can do for me. That's, a, that's, a, that's thinking a lot like Judas. What can Jesus do for me? Versus the mentality of Mary. I'll give anything and everything just to have Jesus. Just give me Jesus. You can have this world. Just give me Jesus. Now what if you say... You know, I like that. That sounds good. But I got to be honest with you, Chris, I'm just a really practical person. You know, I look at pouring out an entire bottle of perfume. You got to smell that in the house. And that just doesn't seem like a real smart idea to me. You know, I'm kind of a cost analysis person. Weigh the pros and cons, benefits. I'm just a practical person. 
So how could I possibly become more like Mary? And the answer is you become like Mary by being like Mary. You do the kind of things Mary did. What did she do? She wasted time at the feet of Jesus. She just spent time at the feet of Jesus. And you've got to learn to do that. You go to Jesus, go to the cross, and just sit there and consider His worth, His value. He's God. He's worth everything. He's, he created you. He created everything. He's worth everything and anything you could possibly give to Him. And on top of that, think about this, not only is He worthy of all that, He gave it all for you. He poured it all out for you. He lavished you with His love, not just a, a year's worth of a perfume bottle. He, he gave everything that which was most valuable for you. So not only is He worthy because of who He is, He gave it all for you. And you just sit there and ponder that and consider that and do whatever it takes to, until your heart it changes you. And you say, oh my goodness, He gave it all for me. How could I not turn around and give it all for Him? And, and until you're ready to give it all for Him, you don't really understand that He's given it all for you. So what do you do? You just stay there and just keep wasting time. It's a royal waste of time. Just sit at the feet of Jesus, this cross, and consider His inestimable worth and value and that He gave it all for you and just stay there until you can't help but get up and give it all for Him. So what I want to do now is just give you a few moments of silence to go to the feet of Jesus and sit there and ponder and consider his sacrifice and what he might want you to sacrifice for him. And then I'll pray for us from there. Let's bow our heads and then I'll lead us from there.